Welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. My name is Tim Hard and I work on this newest of our publications. Although Argus is looking to move away from talking colours to a carbon intensity grading system, today we're talking about what the man in the street calls blue hydrogen. I'm joined by two guests today. The first is Doug Wood, who is the gas committee chair at EFET, the European Federation of Energy Traders. In a prior life, he was BP's head of regulatory affairs. And Matt Drinkwater is the second guest. He is the senior editor of Gas, Power and LNG at Argus Media. Before joining us, he was the biofuels editor for New Energy Finance. Gentlemen, welcome. This podcast is listened to by a wide variety of people across heavy industries. So, for example, I've spent 15 years in steel markets and I've really never interacted with the gas markets. Matt, you're 14 years deep in them. For someone like me who's never paid much attention to, to nat gas markets, can you give us a blurb on all things methane? Where to begin? But uh, thanks for the intro, Tim. Gas is one of the things that uh, has really energized the world economy over the last 30, 40 years, particularly in Europe, where access to supply from the North Sea, from Russia, from Norway, has given us a relatively cheap source of energy for heating, and it's given us really important molecules for industry. So it's a hugely important component of our energy system, and it's a really important component of the European economy. But uh, unless there's some kind of uh, political brouhaha, it generally stays in the background and it's just the thing that you take for granted that uh, heats up your water in the morning and makes sure that uh, you keep the power plants running that helps keep your lights on. So it's very much uh, you know, like the, uh, the molecule itself. It's not very visible, but it's definitely mm. important. Thank you. Doug, your association, it represents a number of energy companies, from wind producers through traders to oil and gas producers. But can you tell a layperson what it does? Sure. So I represent the European Federation of Energy Traders, and we represent the trading interests of many of these companies. So as you said, we have everyone from oil and gas production to utilities who supply, uh, some large industrial consumers, as well as pure traders. And the unique thing about that is it allows us to take a neutral position between buying and selling, and it allows us to take a neutral position between power and gas, which is the two main products that uh, we represent the trading divisions of, although also we include carbon and related ancillary products. So the importance of that is we don't have a particular axe to grind in terms of pushing particular technologies, but what we are looking for is a market design that allows the degree of technical neutrality that what we want to see governments pursue, particularly within this decarbonisation agenda, is to say, well, we don't know what's going to be the best technology. The market's best at deciding that. Let's create a framework that allows the market to optimise developments in particular technology and how it works, rather than our politicians tell you what to invest in. Fantastic. That's really helpful, because I, I, I wanted a key question to ask was uh, whether your membership considers themselves energy traders first with an agnosticism towards the energy itself? Obviously, individual members have specific preferences, but what we try to do within the committee and within the association as a whole is to, to balance these interests and come up with a, a structure or recommendations or advocacy positions that are, are much more neutral in that. Let's talk about the molecular gas. It's a future market, one which is moving from beyond production gates. What will this actually look like, a hydrogen market? How is it being envisioned today? You Obviously, you mentioned existing infrastructures considered in that calculus. What do you think the future market might look like? There's a lot of things that electricity cannot do. 
there are certain uses for example, in industry where electrification doesn't reach the necessary temperatures in iron and steel, for example, or bricks or ceramics, where you need an alternative fuel in order to reach those high temperatures or as chemical feedstocks. But most importantly, as we move in the transition from an electricity market that's got large proportions of dispatchable plant, that when you switch on your heating in the winter, it doesn't matter if the, if the sun's shining or the wind's blowing, you know your heating's going to come on, your lights are going to come on, or, or whatever you're using electricity for. And as we move to an increasingly intermittent world, we have to look at what will replace gas and gas storage and still remaining parts of, indeed, coal and oil, which are easily storable products, whereas electricity is not storable in the same way. So to create that seasonality, particularly in northern Europe, where we have cold winters, is going to be a key challenge. For, for the transition going forward. And that's one of the important reasons we've got to get this market design correct, because there has to be the proper price signals to create a investment in storage in whatever means that might be. And hydrogen could be a key means of providing seasonal storage, as long as the pricing signals are there to you know, develop the correct storage facilities. Or at the point that you know, where batteries can be used more for grid stability or, or get more economic at what point we use them for energy storage or demand side management where we're incentivizing consumers to reach their consumption all of these things require good price signals and one market that we can look at where we have developed extremely successfully over the last 20 to 25 years has been the gas market and with certain similarities between hydrogen and natural gas it seems obvious to look to natural gas in the first instance as a kind of basis for how we might consider setting up a hydrogen market. Mm. So the industrial heat market is obviously one which is, is not easily replaced by electrification in these other areas. Is it being considered by your members as something which would be really directed towards those sorts of markets? Or there's obviously a lot of talk about gas injection into residential homes and things like that. Is there a distinction being drawn by your members? Well, this is exactly where we think that markets are best placed to make decisions because we can't exactly predict where the technological advancements are going to be. And it's not really possible in practice just to say, right, first of all, we're going to decarbonize grey hydrogen markets. And then when we're finished decarbonizing grey hydrogen markets, then we're going to move on to um, industrial load. And then after industrial load, we're going to move on to power generation. We have to do all of these things at the same time. The, the challenge of decarbonisation is so great that we're really going to have to throw a lot more at this, look at different technologies at the same time. I was looking at Eurostat numbers for 2019, the year before the pandemic. 75% of final energy consumption came from natural gas, coal and oil. So we're decarbonising 75% of European energy supply. That's, mm. that's an enormous challenge. And electrification can't be the only tool in the box. Mm. Matt, what about you? It's interesting to me when I look at these markets, because it, it strikes me that there might be the development of continental markets, in essence, and that something like ammonia could be used as a vector, much as the way that LNG is at the moment in markets. Is that fair, unfair? I think the infrastructure is potentially going to be one of the biggest Things to consider with ammonia, we obviously have existing infrastructure for 
for seaborne shipping in the form of LNG, but uh, it was expensive to develop. It took quite a long time to develop. It's now, as the uh, that section of the industry continues to mature, we are seeing uh, you know an acceleration in the pace of building out in uh, both uh, on the supply side and uh, the import facilities. But you could argue that a more kind of pipeline-oriented market where you're leveraging existing infrastructure that's connecting existing industrial centers that may be able to you know, coordinate refitting or, or retrofitting their equipment and whatever way to be able to accept uh, you know, either a greater proportion of hydrogen or switch entirely to hydrogen is probably going to be where this kind of market can start. And then that will generate in itself its own price signals. Then once you have that kind of a framework, then looking at a more internationalized market and, and looking at the seaborne side of it becomes a lot more viable. But this really parallels the way that the natural gas market has evolved, right? The main price signals have come from these big pipeline-based markets in Europe and and in the U.S. And it's only really relatively recently that the seaborne markets have taken on the prominence that they have. So there's a lot of parallels, obviously, that uh, that people are uh, are leaning on here. What about differences between the markets? Well, one of the obvious differences is the starting point, of course. When we introduced competition to the natural gas market, it was already fairly well established. There were high pressure, pressure transmission systems. We had, you know, fully built out demand base. And we're not starting that with hydrogen, of course. So what we think is likely to be the course is we may start to see small hydrogen clusters developing, small industrial parks where they both produce and consume hydrogen within a, a geographical area, within an industrial site. And then some of those sites may have surplus production capability. Some of them may have surplus demand. And so by linking these sites by means of a, a backbone, which might be a new hydrogen pipeline, or it might be cannibalizing the existing uh, natural gas system and converting that, repurposing it to hydrogen, and gradually building out in that way. And then, as, as Matt says, ultimately, when we've got much more national and regional markets to connect them globally and through other vectors, also becomes possible. And in this way, we begin to see more open price signals emerging. Obviously, one of the areas that everyone's looking at is everyone's trying to do sector coupling at the moment and trying to limit their risk. Is there a risk of a lack of pricing being seen in the wild as this market develops? Or do you think that Europe's on top of that with some of the initiatives that they're pushing? We have a a picture we draw. I'm sorry, I can't give you the video for this on the podcast. (laughs) But there's there's a triangle. We have three parts of that triangle. We have electricity, we have natural gas, and we have hydrogen. And they will all interact and relate off each other. So it's it's not just sector coupling between electricity and natural gas. There's now a third element of this. So we'll start to see price spreads emerging between natural gas and hydrogen, because you can convert natural gas to hydrogen by decarbonizing. And we'll come back to colors, I guess, in a bit. With CCUS, you can also turn hydrogen into, into methane with synthetic methanation. So you can see a spread emerging there. You've got existing spreads between the spark spread between natural gas and electricity, although you don't really convert electricity back to natural gas. And then finally, you're going to have a price correlation between electricity and hydrogen through electrolysis, but also hydrogen back to electricity, either through fuel cells or combustion. So we've now got this triangle where we're going to see new spreads opening up where there will be a degree of correlation or relationship between those products. And we may well start to see new hedging mechanisms arise 
for electrolysis, for example, by a we haven't quite got names for these yet that, I, that I'm aware of, but the equivalent of a spark spread and a crack spread and a dark spread. I'm sure we'll see others emerging where traders will want to trade um, basis between these different products. Where are the differences? What about in things like storage? And I ask that because I, I genuinely don't know what storage Europe has. So much of the NatGas industry is invisible to me. We, we all know what storage depots look like or, or, or the, uh, the storage that can be performed for NatGas. That's visible above the ground. But do we actually have storage below the ground usable for hydrogen because it's viewed as a long duration store of energy so yes uh, europe has plenty of underground storage that's been used for natural gas it has salt caverns and depleted fields now salt caverns do seem to work for hydrogen they're already being used in some industrial structures so there's a much larger amount of storage in depleted fields which we'll need to convert somehow if we're to maintain the the seasonal capability of of hydrogen as an alternative to natural gas. And the thing is that hydrogen molecules are much smaller than methane molecules. So if you choose the wrong kind of depleted reservoir, these small molecules can seep into the permeability of the rock and you don't get them back. Mm. Um, It's also the case that late on in the life, you can get pore clogging. So that prevents you being able to reproduce the gas that you've stored. There's additional issues that depleted reservoirs, of course, have a lot of methane cushion gas which you would have to replace with hydrogen. That takes a lot of hydrogen. And when you inject hydrogen into the reservoir, of course, the first thing you're going to produce is the methane cushion gas. It's likely you'll produce a commingled stream of gas and you'll need to have the facility to be able to process something that starts off with large proportions of methane and small proportions of hydrogen. But as you cycle through the facility, that can be quite dynamic and change. And similarly, we get issues that because we're dealing with a microorganisms in the field that you can get microbial contamination with the the hydrogen that the hydrogen can actually react and convert back into methane these are a number of challenges that the upstream industry and the storage industry is looking very closely at to see if they can be overcome but it's certainly not a slam dunk and we can't automatically assume that you can just pick up any old depleted reservoir that's been used for natural gas and be able to store hydrogen in it yeah. Matt, what's cushion gas? Cushion gas is the gas that you keep in a storage facility to maintain the pressure. So if you have a uh, storage facility, the total capacity, say a billion cubic meters, maybe 40 percent of that might be cushion gas. And then the other 60 percent would be the gas that's called the working gas, which you can withdraw and reinject again. And the cushion gas needs to stay there to just maintain the pressure so that you get that functionality from the facility. I see. It's interesting because it sounds as if increasing amounts of hydrogen going into fields can actually act as a uh, (laughs) way to decarbonize the natural gas coming out. I've not heard that before. That's fantastic. So we've talked about what it might look like, the market, and how it might differ or be similar to existing nat gas markets. With half the emissions from coal, nat gas has been viewed as the bridge to the energy transition. And recently, that bridge has seemed to become a bit thinner. The fugitive emissions and flaring have come under increased scrutiny. And most recently, a study was published by Cornell and Stanford. And they were claiming that producing blue hydrogen was worse than simply burning methane due to methane emissions. And it's a greenhouse gas, which is 84, 85 times as potent as carbon dioxide over a 20-year horizon. The EU is being pressured by the ECCT and others not to include fossil-derived hydrogen as a Red 2 eligible pathway. Red 2 requires, I think it's a 70% reduction in emissions from hydrogen production. 
though associations like Hydrogen Europe are pushing for, I think, 75%. The initial question is, is it a help or a hindrance, um, blue hydrogen? Is the jury still out? Well, and certainly the way we discuss this with an EFET is that the task is so big and in so many ways that we need to look at a fairly wide range of ways of achieving that. And one of the challenges is how you build up the supply side and the demand side at the same time so that when uh, industrial users decide to convert over to hydrogen, the hydrogen is there and the quantities they need and the profiles they need to be able to consume that. And similarly, if you're investing in electrolyzers, you're investing in CCUS kit, then you want to be sure that you can sell that in the market. So there's a degree of flexibility is going to be very important in how we build out both the supply and the demand side. We've talked already also about the storage that is used at the moment that is supplied currently for natural gas, both for seasonality, but also for security of supply mm. and where that's going to come from in future. And one of the challenges of renewable electricity is, of course, if it's related to renewable electricity production, then that means two things. It means if you are taking early renewable electricity production to make hydrogen, then you're probably still dispatching coal or gas somewhere. So you're not actually having a significant decarbonisation, as you might think, until you have a much larger proportion of renewable electricity within the generation base. So it's not having quite the same environmental effect early on. So the Commission is going to clarify the criteria for sustainability and GHG savings in its upcoming gas package. And I think that's on the 14th of this month, December. Doug, how important are the results of the EC's gas package to your members? This is going to be absolutely key to this. We're, now, we're all busy digesting some leaked versions that we've seen at the moment, but we don't know how close they will be to the final package that we see. One thing we do know is that when you design a piece of legislation, particularly if you do it in a darkened room and you bring it out and release it to the industry and start playing it for real money, you might find out that the market participants don't behave in the same way that you thought they were going to do when you actually designed the package. So we're hoping that the Commission will still be open to discussions and workshops about how the industry views this package. Because some of the early discussions we've seen, for example, creates differences between guarantees of origin, that is um, sort of certificates of environmental credentials, if you like, that are already in place for electricity and renewable gas. They might be different in form or covered by different legislation uh, mm. between low carbon gases. So yeah. that might cause a problem in the tradability of these, these instruments. Similarly, they might create, they might start to put uh, different forms of hydrogen into different markets, whereas what we'd like to see is a big hydrogen market and then be able to trade the environmental credentials separately. I think you're right. It's a big reveal. There is danger in there. But it also can sometimes work spectacularly well. The IMO did it a little while ago on the maritime fuel oil markets. Pretty much overnight, 85% of uh, sulfur was scrubbed out of things. I suppose another another question actually is, what about carbon offsets? Matt, your division's just launched a tracker for LNG deals with offsets that are being marketed as carbon neutral. Do offsets have the potential to change the calculus on the side of what emissions are counted? We're tracking them as best we can, but I think one of the big problems that the industry really needs to address is that there isn't yet an accepted, a widely used standard for accounting for the efficacy of the offsets 
tracking the source of them, for ensuring that uh, we're comparing like with like. So are we going from the well to the burner tip or is it only to the point of unloading for LNG and so on? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, I think, for the uh, credentials of these offsets to really be viewed as credible by wider society. And even if we achieve that, it feels like something that uh, the scale of the offsets required to offset you know, the entire of the global gas system would be insanely large. And so it's something that could help us along this transition pathway, but it's not a solution to anything. But it does raise a really interesting question about parts of this transition pathway. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. big challenges in moving from gas to hydrogen is how do you ensure that there is enough gas continuing to be supplied for the needs that remain? And if we have this kind of level of policy uncertainty about whether there'll be any gas at all left in the energy mix 20, 30 years from now, and when you bear in mind that your long-term gas supply contracts are are often of 20, 30-year duration, it's a real headache for the industry now. So having some combination of blue hydrogen and an offset could give the industry a much more gentle off-ramp that would allow it to manage that transition process much more smoothly rather than a hard stop, which <laughs> cliff could, edge. Uh, yeah, that kind of cliff edge could create a, a huge amount of, uh, of problems in the market. And, you know, it's arguable that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the current challenges in the gas market are the result of underinvestments in production during the low price environment of uh, 2019 and 2020. So if you look at the huge problems that's created now, yep. If you then spread that across the entire energy industry and with a cliff edge date and time, then that could be even worse than the situations we're currently facing. I mean, these are voluntary markets for now. And I think that the NGOs are pushing for them to remain voluntary markets till about 2030 and to keep offsets separate from the emissions trading scheme. Doug, are your members putting their faith in CCS or offsets or both? There's still a lot of discussion going on about how these different environmental instruments interact. In particular, one of the challenges we find at the moment is we've got a carbon trading scheme, but that's quite separate from the discussions about guarantees of origin and instruments that value the renewability aspect of the scheme. And sometimes they interact and sometimes they're separate. And that's one of the challenges we face at the moment, that if you were designing the market, you wouldn't start from here, but we're trying to progress from something that's already in place. So it can be done. It's not exactly envisaged in the current legislation, and we're under discussion about you know how these things can interact. Okay. We discussed the carbon intensity here. We have to talk about taxonomy. It's a pet peeve of mine, the, the colours being used to describe hydrogen. It's wholly ineffective. We just put out a proposal for a different way of looking at the hydrogen market based on carbon intensity embedded in hydrogen itself. What is the market thinking about and how important is that to be put in place before a functional market can emerge? I think what we want to see most of all is a market for hydrogen that doesn't distinguish between the colours, which are a convenient shorthand, or the sources. Because if we start to send you know, renewable hydrogen into one grid and blue hydrogen into another grid, we won't be able to reap the advantages that you know can be brought if one has um, greater flexibility or dispatchability or to ensure that we have continued cross-border trading and provide the necessary security of supply that we have been enjoying with natural gas. So the more we try to break that down, the, the more we put that at risk. But we can 
put the environmental credentials into a separate certificate and trade that independently. So that if people want their hydrogen to be produced by Spanish solar or Dutch wind, that it can be, you know, whether it's natural gas with CCUS, then they can attach a value to that and they can trade that environmental credential separately. I mean, I think that everyone's looking at the market as a hydrogen market. So at the molecular level, everyone's looking at the same thing. And obviously no one's thinking about putting in a, a hydrogen backbone with several tubes in it, one for green, one for blue, or these different types of carbon intensity. Obviously, it has to be all one backbone comprised of hydrogen. But of course, the other thing is, though, that companies have mandates that they've either self-imposed or taken on board, and they, they have to show that they're actually decarbonizing 2030, 2040, 2050. And so do you see guarantees of origin as being a crucial thing in this chain of custody, I suppose you'd say? Yes. And although you say people aren't expecting to set up separate pipeline systems, if you design the guarantees of origin scheme wrongly, you can create separate markets for green hydrogen and blue hydrogen or pink or whatever colors you want to choose. And that's one of the risks that we have at the moment, that instead of being able to sell hydrogen into a pool, that if you are required by the environmental instruments to be able to track the molecules from production to consumption, then there's a huge question about how you do that within a commingled system. So we've never had to worry about gas. You just deliver <laughs> gas into a pool, you take gas from a pool, and it doesn't matter who gets what because it's all commoditized. But you start to color the molecules using a certificate, then you put that whole thing at risk. And that's one of the concerns that we have, that the market for hydrogen will be inadvertently fragmented through poor design of instruments. Okay. So Matt, in terms of what's on the ground, or sometimes in the ground already, is the current infrastructure able to take hydrogen markets? I mean, we talk about, you know, embrittlement and things like that. How much can we piggyback? Is it uh, the amount of hydrogen in the gas? What can you tell me? So in some countries, there's perhaps more potential to piggyback on the existing infrastructure already because of work that they've been doing in recent years to renew the gas grid. So I'm thinking in particular of the UK, where we've gone through a big process of replacing the old uh, steel piping with plastic piping, which is uh, a lot more impervious to the hydrogen molecule and could make it a lot easier to just piggyback on the existing grid. In continental Europe, it's a lot more mixed picture. There's a lot of relatively new steel that I believe that's been put in the ground. So that could be a bit more of a headache in terms of trying to retrofit it. But there's also quite a big opportunity in the form of the low calorie network that spreads across the Netherlands and northern France and parts of Western Germany. Because the phase out of this huge gas field in the Netherlands called Groningen, because it's an onshore field and uh, local residents have been suffering earthquakes for increasing intensity in recent years. So that's in the process of being wound down, which means that that low calorie gas network that uh, used to ship the Groningen gas around Europe could potentially be a pilot for creating a much more regionalized hydrogen network if that were repurposed. So that could be a really interesting development if uh, we go in that direction. But the amount of work that's involved could be considerable. Well, Doug, what about that? Is retrofitting likely to be more expensive to the existing grid? Would we end up with one or could we potentially end up with two infrastructures? Well, the guys who own and operate the pipeline network say that it's definitely cost economic and a lot cheaper than building new pipelines. 
We're going to be aware of some different dynamics, though, as well, because typically in Europe, we're very accustomed to large production basins with lots of natural gas coming in from Russia or Algeria or Norway or the North Sea, whereas that's going to be replaced particularly with renewable hydrogen from local sources that might be input into distribution grids, low pressure grids. So there's going to be a slightly different dynamic there that we'll also have to take account of. Also, how do you phase over from one to another? And it may be that there will need to be parallel grids, as Matt was suggesting, for a while, so that we'll have a one grid for hydrogen and there'll be a separate grid for initially methane, including biomethane, but also mm. with the potential to transport other gases. And that's one of the things that gets quite interesting, because at the moment, the technology to split gases out is not quite economic. But when you get to a point, if you start having economic membranes, that allows you to co-transport methane mm. and hydrogen down the same grid and separate them at the other end so that you can put hydrogen in and take hydrogen out of that grid, then mm. that opens up a whole new model of these things. And so the transition is going to be based a lot or depend a lot on technical innovation. And it's those kind of technical innovations that really open up some interesting possibilities. Fantastic. That's a really interesting discussion today. Doug, Matt, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. From all of us at Argus Hydrogen Future Fuels, want to wish all our listeners a very Merry Christmas, a happy and safe New Year. Hopefully you won't get any coal in your stocking this year, although it's probably worth a bit in the current environment. We look forward to seeing you all in 2022.